Greg Mackling, 680 CJOB. How are you, Greg? Oh, I should turn on my no, microphone. No, you know what? I, here's the thing. I turned <laughs> on your curtain. mic. I turned on your mic, but yeah. this partic- this button glitches, and I hit the button, and it turns on, and then it turns off. It, it sticks. It does stick. And I've been meaning to uh, ask an engineer about that, and I always say, oh, got to ask someone, and then I promptly forget. Well, they can't Every fix time. it. They can't fix it if they don't know it's broken, right? Indeed. And, so uh, I know a lot of times they'll come in and they go, how long has this been like this? Months? Did you tell anybody? No, I didn't tell anybody. Sorry. <laughs> I've been meaning to. Yes. I just keep forgetting. I know. I get you. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks to everyone that came out to poker for a purpose or poker with a purpose for the Never Alone Foundation last night. I uh, donated all my chips very quickly <laughs> last night. Where was this? This was at McPhillips Station Casino. Uh, pff, there must have been a thousand players last night or close to it. Wow. It was an outstanding event. I just want to thank uh, the folks there uh, for inviting us down to to be a part of that. Kathy Kennedy was there as well, Joy representing. Hello. 680C Joe B, you're right. Joeello was there. Peter Nygaard was there live and in person. And um, one of my boys, you know, he's got those billboards all over town with his bulging muscles. One of my boys said the other day, Do you think Peter Nygaard takes steroids? <laughs> he's got huge biceps. <laughs> okay. And he does. And he does. It's big, big. Takes good care of himself. He has big muscles. You big mean. muscles, okay. yeah. Big muscles. <laughs> I was saying, he does take steroids. <laughs> I know he does take care of himself. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Mr. Nygaard, if you're listening, I didn't even know he ever came to Winnipeg anymore, so it was kind of neat to see him and uh, lots of the other uh, media out as well, our uh, radio uh, host friends from uh, from around the dial. How about uh, our friends from Torque Brewing? They were there last night as well. Yeah, they've got this beer called Foundation. It's the second year that... That they've done this. It's a beer that they brew specifically to help raise money for charity. So for every 12-pack of foundation that is sold, Torque Brewing is going to proudly donate $4 directly to the Never Alone Foundation. It's an uh, it's an American pale ale, and it sounds like I, I didn't, I haven't tried this yet. It's uh, citrusy and lightly piney with fruit notes. It's a medium malty beer. I can tell you. Great way I, to quench your thirst. Did I, you like it? I tried it last night. Yeah. I did like it. It, okay. was, it was good. As you know, I'm trying to expand my palate with beer as I've done with wine over the years. And as beer becomes more experimental mm-hmm. and does some more interesting things, I have to keep up. Otherwise, I'm going to get left in the dust. Uh, the Hellas Lager, what the Hellas Lager from Torque is my go-to beer right now. Uh, but I might be convinced to to indulge. <laughs> In the Foundation Beer a little bit. And a great cause. They're going to donate up to $10,000 to the Never Alone Foundation. That'll be available in stores uh, coming up in the summer. It's not quite available just yet. I am very excited for 745 today because just like last month when I was working feverishly on my Shattering Glass feature, you have been working on this for weeks now. And uh, I can see you're a little fatigued, you're a little excited <laughs> to get to unroll this. I'm very, and I, I can't even speak. I'm in such, the anticipation is killing me. What are you going to tell us about today? It's like a short-term pregnancy. 
<laughs> all the work, all the classes, and uh, ready to deliver the baby at 745. Uh, <laughs> the headline came across the wire yesterday, in fact, uh, very ironically, drug-resistant, and the CDC's calling it, that's the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, calling it nightmare bacteria. And I've been working on uh, on several stories that have kind of mashed into one uh, big feature about antibiotic-resistant bacteria and the threat that it poses to man and humankind. Oh. And so we will uh, indulge in those stories, as scary as they may be, at 745. We'll talk to the CDC at 905 to find out what they're doing with regard to these nightmare bacteria that are found in, get this, one in 10 Americans that they tested. Now, just because, yeah, one in 10, and... It may not make you sick, but you may be a carrier of this bacteria. And the CDC has done something unprecedented to react to this. We will talk uh, to one of the major doctors at the CDC and also give you some insight as to what's going on in terms of new antibiotic development here in Manitoba. Manitoba has a huge history in terms of medical research and coming up with cures and vaccines and drugs for H1N1, SARS, HIV, some of the leading uh, AIDS research is done here in Manitoba, and now our good friend Dr. Grant Pierce and his colleagues are working on what could be a game-changing antibiotic. City of Vancouver targeting plastic straws as it plans a strategy to cut down on plastic and styrofoam waste placing restrictions on single-use disposable cups, bags, takeout containers, and utensils. The city says it costs about $2.5 million a year to collect single-use items from public green spaces and waste bins, and its strategy contains proposals to reduce, reuse, or recycle the offending items. The city says plastic straws and stir sticks make up about 3% of shoreline litter in Vancouver, and this news comes on the heels of McDonald's announcement that the fast food chain will be replacing plastic straws with biodegradable ones in the UK. So today we're having coffee, talking what other common items can we eliminate to reduce what goes into our landfills. Greg Mackling, Shanley Vidal, Behind the Glass Jerry, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and me, Brett McGarry. Saying hello. So straws. The first thing I want to point or I want to ask, uh, and we'll start with uh, I don't know. We'll start with you, Jeff. I when I go out for a drink, I hate getting straws. Like uh, if I ask for a rum and coke or something. Oh yeah. Are you are you a beer guy all the time? Yeah, or? I'm a beer guy. Just sucking on that bottle, so okay. I don't need a straw. <laughs> okay. All right. What about here? Here's one of the reasons why I wanted to start with you because it. When I go out for a drink and get a rum and coke, I just take the straw out and put it down. But you go to the movie a lot. Yeah impossible to get a drink without a straw. I That's think. true, but it's also dark in there and I don't know, it feels like I would spill my drink if I didn't have that straw at the theater. That's that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. I, so I don't know what the alternative to that would be as far as fountain drinks unless they just entirely go to plastic bottles or something. And I hate the way pop tastes out of a plastic bottle. It's it's different. I, right. I'm not a fan. I like yeah. a can. I like a can or I like a fountain. Hmm. Or a glass Most bottle. Most people say the can is... Glass bottle. The glass bottle would be best. The can would be... Change the taste the most you'd think. Well, uh, however, it changes the taste. I like the I way know. it changes the taste too. <laughs> <laughs> but they make paper cups. Why not uh, thick paper straws? Right? Like, there's got to be a biodegradable option for that. Yeah, it sounds well. And I think the thing is that they're more expensive. 
Uh, they're apparently they're a lot uh, more expensive, but uh, they, but the earth the is priceless, is so we better. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm just I'm not <laughs> defending the plastic straw. I'm just pointing out that a lot of uh, companies are have been reluctant, but I think the pressure's on, especially when you have a giant company like McDonald's taking this leap. Uh, Kelly, yesterday we learned you're the the lord of the leftovers, mm-hmm. and you're very good with your leftovers. What about uh, recyclables or or getting rid of things or stopping? using things yeah. that maybe were one day common. Yeah, always shop with uh, either totes or cloth bags. Okay. Uh, I can't remember the last time that uh, we asked for plastic bags at the grocery store. Uh, and there was a couple of other things I was thinking of. It, it might be a little radical and people might be saying, oh, that's way too inconvenient. But I'm thinking for folks who go to Tim Hortons every day or another coffee shop every day, why not bring your coffee mug and let's cut down on the use of paper coffee cups? Yeah. Uh, even, I, I think, in, in terms of, and this might be really over the top, but for takeout food. You know, you mentioned plastic utensils as, as part of that. It'll just always have some cutlery with you in the car in a baggie or whatever with the, the proper way to, to be able to clean it. And, and save on that so that if you're not taking the food home to eat, then at least you have the cutlery to use it. And, and if, if we all started doing just a little bit of that, does it make, you know, I, I think it does make a big difference. What about for the movies if, if, say, the movie chain, instead of selling individual drinks with straws, if they, they you sold like a $5 cup or whatever that you could bring back yeah, that had like a sippy own. cup yeah. or something yeah. on it. So you didn't have a straw, just had a, a lid with a slot that you could drink out of. As someone who worked in the restaurant business, part of the problem is this is how these companies do their inventory control. And so because of a fountain drink, you can't really meter it about mm-hmm. what should be going in and how much you should actually be using. The way they meter that and the way they keep track of it is how many cups they've sold, how many cups they've yes. used, and those have to kind of correlate somewhat. So that's part of the issue is how these companies uh, dispense, keep track of their inventory. But with new technology, Greg, I'm sure they could measure what how many liters of pop they've sold. Though. Well, well, let's think of Tim Hortons as your example. They make that coffee in a conventional pot. Mm-hmm. How are you going to meter that? How are you going to so keep how track? Many how many bags of come in and out every day? Okay, but that, but that's what they're using. How do they keep track exactly of what they're selling and, and what's being given away for free? That's a concern. I'm just mm-hmm. telling you yeah. that, that I think that's part of the out. equation here. Find, I think they find could, a solution because I think it's worth it for the environment. And I think we've at that time. Uh, Shanalee? Well, it's funny because... I think we we take a lot of things for granted, like getting a straw. Like it's funny because whenever I'd order water, they, normally they don't give you a straw at a restaurant whenever you order water. But mm. when they do, mm. when they do, I feel super special because I've got, I, I do. And it's like, but I, but I think we have to kind of change our thinking. And there's there's so many things that that we've had we for convenience's sake. Now it's like, oh, we have to we have to fix things. We have to kind of go back in time, and we have to, um, you know, think about new ways and, and more environmental environmentally friendly ways because we're using up the earth. Um, and I confess, I don't do as much as I, I I should be doing. I always forget to bring my bags when I go grocery shopping because a lot of times it's kind of on a whim and uh, when I've, all, all of a sudden I'm hungry. So what I need to do is start carrying them. I have a little small nylon bag that folds up into a little pouch. I need to put start putting that in my bag. But what I do do is when I go grocery shopping for fruits and vegetables, I, most of the time I never use the plastic bags for putting your products in because you don't really need them, right? Only if you're doing something that's in many multiples. 
Right. But but even so, if you have like a couple of apples, you don't really need bags for that. Yeah, so the, if you buy, sorry, Greg, but uh, if you buy like a set, like a, a bushel of green onions or something, you just put that in the plastic uh, carry the the basket that you carry around yeah. the store. Yeah, yeah. The filthy, disgusting basket. <laughs> yeah, well, make it well, harder for everyone. Wash you can't anyway bring it up as well. Well, well, you, good point, Jerry. Jerry says you're going to be washing your fruit or your vegetables when you get it home anyway. Yeah. So there's like the Queen of England or something, I suppose. <laughs> 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 Jerry, well, do you want to jump in on this? Yeah, well, you know, it it seems like we're almost kind of behind uh, the curve here because, I mean, uh, Scotland is completely banning plastic straws by next year. Completely gone in the entire country. Uh, Taiwan is getting rid of all, all plastic one-use items like straws, cups, things like that. Uh, they're going to be completely banned. They're saying by 2030, but it'll probably be sooner than that as well. So, I mean, it seems like, you know what, let's catch up to the times here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. Just do it. Like the, like Nike, just do it. Yeah. Well, and the thing with it, you know, those plastic bags you get from the grocery store, they are a pain in the neck. And, uh, you know, when they ask me if I want to pay five cents or two pennies or whatever it is for one, I really, you know, think twice about buying another one because I've got a mountain of them at my house. But as long as you do the right thing with them and take them back and get them recycled, they're not, just don't put them in your garbage for them to end up in the landfill. They're not, you know, as evil as we make them out to be because they can be recycled and turned into furniture and and all sorts of different uses. So uh, sometimes it's thinking about what you're going to do with the plastic fork, with the straw, with the plastic bag, as much as anything else after you use it and not just treating it like garbage. I, I think the thing is we shouldn't have to find other uses for these things that we're recycling. Like, you know, there's been many uses for the plastic bags. They've been turned into mats uh, for homeless people, which is great, but it's like we're trying to figure ways to use up all of this this junk that we have, but we shouldn't have had all this junk in the first place. Yeah, we have somebody uh, who's texted saying, I recycle as much as possible. I don't understand why you can't recycle plastic bags in your recycling at home. Uh, and that's from Phil. And I've never quite gotten that either because are the bags not recyclable? They are. Or? They're just separate. They're a different kind of plastic. And there's only so like there's only so many places apparently that deal with it. And so and they like it concentrated in concentrated form. So that's why they have those big receptacles at the they're they're just different. Who was that? Who you guys I think had them on your show where they're using these plastic bags to make uh, some kind of furniture or something like that? W- wasn't there somebody on your show? Or Well, I know my kid's school, they do a recycling drive on these bags every year. Yeah. And last year, they got an actual park bench yeah. weight made with that recycled material. So, yeah, it's made for uh, awesome outdoor f- furniture, actually. You poke holes in them the right way that you can wear them as shorts. It is time now for the Small Town Salute, brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort, where service sets them apart. SouthBeachCasino.ca this week. We are headed to Gross Isle. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you on this Thursday morning. 
And it's we're going there because the Canadian Ringette Championships are being held in Winnipeg from April 7th to April 14th. So we thought we would visit with one of the Ringette players whose team is competing in the championships. And Olivia McCowan joins us live this morning on 680 CJOB. She is from Gross Isle, a member of the Manitoba Magic, who will be competing in the under-19 division of the Canadian Ringette Championships. Miss McCowan, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Thank you very much for joining us today. So the Manitoba Magic is your team. And uh, how, I guess, why don't we start with how you got into Ringette as you were growing up in uh, rural Manitoba? Um, so when I was younger, I started actually my first year, I was involved in hockey just to get skating and get on the ice, you know, a good Canadian sport. Um, and they were just starting up a ringette program in Warren, which is my local community club. So I joined that, and I just fell in love with the game, and I've never looked back. I have to tell you, Olivia, once upon a time, I wanted to do a book exclusively on small-town arenas across Canada because I think sometimes people forget what a heart, the very heart of communities Rinks become in the winter time, and where people gather for all sorts of different occasions, and how hockey and or ringette can galvanize the community. Talk about the the complex and Warren a little bit, and and humanize it for us, if you could. Um, yeah, so it's just a single rink, just located in just outside of Warren, and it's really a place where everybody comes together. You know, you have the high schoolers working at the canteen, you have the um, rink guy sharpening skates, and everybody knows everybody, and you can't go there and not know somebody. So it's really nice to just, it's how you can connect with people in the long winter. Do they have good poutine there, Olivia? Or what do you know? Um, I don't think they do, but I don't know. I'm not a big Putin fan, so. <laughs> I just thought I'd ask because a lot of rinks are, are going above and beyond with uh, with their food. So talk about the, the your participation now uh, with regard to these Canadian Ringette Championships. How exciting is this? Oh, it's super exciting. We're all just so excited to be able to participate in these championships, which are the biggest national championships that we can participate in at our age and just to bring the sport to Winnipeg and to be able to play in front of our home crowd and have all our fans out there. Now you drive in every morning uh, from outside of the perimeter, right? Why don't you tell us, first of all, where is uh, Gross Isle? Uh, Gross Isle is about 20 minutes northwest of Winnipeg. It's on Highway 6, and it's just a little town that you could miss. You could drive right by, and you wouldn't even know it's there. How did Netflix discover that it's there? Because the series The Pinkertons was shot on location there in the summer of 2014. Yeah, that was really great. They came in and they shot the whole show in Gross Isle, and they did lots of things for the community. That was back in 2014. Um, And I don't really know how they discovered it, but we're sure glad they did. Well, my kids uh, love to go on the Prairie Dog Central, and one of the stops, one of the potential stops in the summer is at Gross Isle, and I'm sure that's where they have that little village, right? It's a turn-of-the-century uh, village. It's an absolutely fantastic place to stop and visit. Oh, yeah. We love the Prairie Dog Railway that comes out every Saturday and Sunday throughout the spring, summer, fall. We all put on a little market and have like a farmer's market for the people who stop. And there's, we have multiple heritage buildings there that were there before the filming, but also used in the filming, which is really cool. And it's just something that brings, again, the community together. 
Olivia McCowan is our guest. She is a ringette player who lives in Gros Isle. She is going to be participating in the Canadian Ringette Championships, which start on Monday at the Iceplex and Seven Oaks Sportsplex, and they'll be going all week. And question about the name of your home, Gross Isle. When you it's spelled G R O S S E, and I think a lot of people might be inclined to say Gross Isle. Why is it pronounced Gross Isle? Um, if you have I, any idea. Yeah, I, I don't know for sure. I know we do get gross style a lot. That's people's first indication, but um, it's just how we say it, I guess, and it's just what it's become since it's since the town's been around. And as is common with communities around and outside the perimeter, uh, Gross Isle has experienced some uh, some dramatic growth in the last couple of decades. Oh, for sure. There's been lots of young families and people who grew up here when they were small have come back and are starting families. And it's been really good to see all the young kids running around and in the school system and just revitalizing the community. So you're competing in the under-19 division at the Canadian Ringette Championships, but then you're also going to be trying out for Team Toba for the 2019 Canada Winter Games in Red Deer? Yes. So that program has been going on for a while, and they've been hosting various tryouts, and I'm very uh, fortunate to still be in that program and still fighting for a spot. But that would that's a very, very good opportunity. Olivia, thank you for doing this. We know you have a school day ahead of you, and we want to wish you best of luck at the National Ringette Championships to your entire Manitoba Magic team, and also good luck in making Team Toba and uh, joining an outstanding, just an amazing experience at uh, Canada Winter Games. That'll be the 40th anniversary, I guess, of the Winter Games being in Brandon. Uh, living in Brandon at the time was a special time, so uh, we're cheering for you here at 680 CJOB. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for having me on this morning. Well, thank you very much, Olivia McCowan. Once again, she is from Gross Isle as part of our Small Town Salute. She's a member of the Manitoba Magic, who will be competing in the under-19 division of the Canadian Ringette Championships, which once again once again, go from Monday until the 17th at the Iceplex and Seven Oaks Sportsplex, and they'll be opening up against Alberta in the opening game, in fact, at 8.15 a.m. I Monday. have a feeling I might have been guilty off the top of saying Gross Isle. No, you didn't. No? No, you said Gross Isle. Okay, good, because uh, I have a family who live up in and around that part of Manitoba, so I wouldn't want to pronounce it wrong. It is really a neat spot, and uh, that Prairie Dog Central, that little town that uh, Livy was talking about, where they have the heritage buildings, uh, where the where the train stops, really neat spot to go. So, if you haven't been on the Prairie Dog, say, in 20 years, make sure you do it. Uh, it's a real highlight. Over-the-counter culture on 680 CJOB. Our series continues this morning. Yesterday, Tristan Field-Jones looked at what you should do with your expired medications and the ramifications of not disposing of them correctly. If you'd like to see that story and others in the series, go to cjob.com. We'd love for you to check them out. There's extended video, audio, as well as extended articles on all of the topics we are covering this week. And Brett... Last September, a story that should have received more attention originated with an announcement from the World Health Organization. The headline, the world is running out of antibiotics. Now, Dr. Grant Pierce, who was in studio with us on Tuesday, put that pronouncement into very simple terms. 
Well, the World Health Organization have identified uh, multi-drug resistance in bacteria as one of the three greatest threats to life today. This is a threat for modern medicine, and that means that several infections become untreatable. That means that if you go to a hospital, that there is a chance that uh, you will get a pneumonia and that there is no effective antibiotic to, uh, to treat you. They're what keep these leading scientists up at night. Superbugs, bacteria that become so strong, the drugs we take on a regular basis to kill them stop working. Human life expectancy has doubled from 30 to 40 years since 1800. Much of that can be attributed to the development of antibiotics. Dr. Grant Pierce is Professor of Pharmacology at the University of Manitoba, as well as the Executive Director of Research at Albrechtson Research Centre on the campus of St. Boniface Hospital right here in Winnipeg. Our lifespan right now is almost double that. Why? Primarily because of antibiotics. Obviously, there have been lots of other big advances in the medical field, but it's antibiotics that have been the big advancement that have an impact on lifespan. We asked Dr. Pierce, how do bacteria become immune to these powerful drugs? You're going to end up with a situation where they go, hmm, you know, the somebody attacked me, I've got to change, I've got to adapt, and you may leave some bacteria behind, which may then mutate, adapt to the situation, and create resistance that you wouldn't normally have. The scariest part? In September, the World Health Organization reported we are not developing new antibiotics fast enough to keep up with these superbugs. But while drug companies and research facilities tackle drug creation, there are some things you can do to help slow down the superbugs. Here's a true or false question. If I take a particular antibiotic once, I can never take it again. Uh, no, that's false. Unless that bacteria is resistant, there's always different types of bacteria. But Ryan Chan, pharmacist at Exchange District Pharmacy, says just because you can take an antibiotic again doesn't mean you should. It's a, it's a good habit to switch your antibiotics just because if you take one, uh, for example, the penicillin attacks its cell wall. The next time, you, wanna, you don't want to attack the cell wall, you want to trick it and then and it'll attack the ribosome. So it just works differently. So it minimizes the potential for resistance. In conversation with all of these experts, there's a common message. Less is more. Dr. Mark Springer is director of the World Health Organization. Only use antibiotics when it is really needed. Not use antibiotics for a flu, for an ear infection, because often you don't need to have antibiotics. And if you really need to use an antibiotic that you start with what I would say the most simple antibiotic. It was Benjamin Franklin who first said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. This historical proverb could very well apply to many aspects of healthcare. For our purposes, let's apply it to vaccines. One of the uh, easy things that need to be done is the vaccination, in particular of children, that will prevent bacterial infections. That's, of course, the most elegant way to avoid the use of antibiotics. So vaccination is very important. Another way to help 
Follow your doctor's orders. Don't stop taking your medicine just because you feel better. So if you take all of your antibiotics as you're supposed to, you wipe everything out, all the bad bacteria are gone, nothing's left to mutate. You've killed them all. But when people take it for half the time they're supposed to, they'll feel fine. I don't need to take any more because I feel okay. But the reality is they've left some vestiges behind that are going to, uh, they're going to adapt and potentially come back. The idea of doing all we can do is critical in reducing the risk to the proliferation of drug-resistant bacteria. A better understanding of when we need these medicines and how they work for patients is a great start. Make sure they understand the potential for resistance. Make sure they understand it's a bacterial infection. Make sure they understand it's a viral infection where you don't need anything as well. So it's all proper communication and, and education. And the thing is, from a patient standpoint, when you're sick, you're sick. I just want some kind of treatment as well making sure that they understand what's happening in their body, why they're sick, why they're getting a treatment, or why they're not getting a treatment. One of the other things we can do to help this situation, Brett, is to wash our hands, practice safer sex, and to, and to just basically just good hygiene so to stop the spread of germs and bacteria. A headline yesterday from the American press, drug-resistant nightmare bacteria pose growing threat. We will visit with Dr. Arjun Srinivasan. He's associate director of healthcare-associated infection control programs for the CDC in Atlanta. Just after 9 o'clock, he'll tell us what the CDC is doing to help uh, keep Americans safe and whether that will translate into things that we can do here in Canada. When you start seeing headlines that include the word drug-resistant nightmare bacteria, you really have to pay attention to this. Want more over-the-counter culture? Go to cjob.com. One, two, three. Right now on 680 CJOB, Shanalee Vidal is here to tell us three things that have to do with food. Oh, good. Right around our lunchtime. It is lunchtime That's for us. That's why I grabbed my banana. <laughs> I knew I was going to be hungry with that segment. So, what Hi, do you got? <laughs> Did you bring us food? I'm sorry I didn't. I will try and remember next time. So good morning, Brad. Good morning, Greg. I'm you sorry. You know the psychology I... of this time of day. It's lunchtime. <laughs> I'm sorry. I will do better next time. All right. So interesting story. And you may actually be glad I didn't bring you food after hearing this one. Okay. Because new research suggests that while Canadians are concerned about food contamination and bacteria, many don't feel personally responsible for keeping themselves safe. Whoa. Yeah. In a recent survey by Nova Scotia's Dalhousie University, only 18% of responsible felt consumers were among the groups most responsible for food safety, even though up to 80% of con- contamination happens in consumers' own kitchens. Hello. That blows my mind. No kidding. Yeah. More than 83% of respondents agreed with the statement that food contamination primarily occurs before food reaches my home. Shocking. Respondents also underestimated the number of food recalls in 2017 with more than thir- or more than 60% rather estimating that there were fewer fewer than 50 when there are actually 155. Okay. Yeah, and the study surveyed more than 1000 Canadian adults last month and the results are considered accurate within 3.1 percentage points 19 times out of 20. How can people not realize that the way you handle ground beef and chicken and eggs and all these 
different contaminants, like uh, directly responsible for food contamination. It's almost all on us. Oh, absolutely. Like the thing I was talking about, how I don't use plastic bags for my, my vegetables. And everyone's grossed out because you're putting your, your vegetables <laughs> in the cart. But the thing is... Wash. Well, it's just a simple thing as just washing your 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 items and and you know handling right. your food properly. What do you wash your vegetables with? Do you have a special uh, formula? No, I just use water. <laughs> I just give them, I just give them a good wash with water. Yeah. Do you have I'll a brush or something? I don't know. No, I I'm, use I'm, my I'm, hands. I'm, I'm using tips because I usually just do water. I, but I've heard there are solutions you can like make. Yes. You, yeah, solutions. And, and for you it. can use vinegar actually on some things, especially if there's like wax on apples. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use a solution of vinegar, or you can buy like a fancy one. But I think vinegar works pretty well. I have I, a, uh, another solution for that. I don't eat apples. <laughs> Ever well, since that conspiracy about all the dentists o- o- owning the apple farms, more <laughs> apples for me. <laughs> An apple a day keeps the doctor away. <laughs> has, uh, has to be in pie form, right, McGarry? Oh yes. You know what? I just recently taken a apple pies thanks to uh, Fruit Share that we talked about uh, with uh, mm-hmm. Getty Stewart. Was that the Getty name? Getty Stewart. You got it. Yep. What's number two today, Shanley? Number two. So as a child, of course, we've all been told by our moms to eat our vegetables. Mm -hmm. And now new research is showing we might want to return the favor because veggies can have important health benefits for older women. A study in the Journal of the American Heart Association analyzed questionnaires of almost 1,000 women above the age of 70 in Australia. So the researchers wanted to see if the amount of fruit or vegetables the women ate were associated with the thickness of the carotid artery wall, which has been linked to heart disease and stroke. Mm -hmm. So now the fruit intake didn't really change the measurement. It was found that those who ate more vegetables, especially those cruciferous vegetables like cabbage, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, broccoli, had thinner artery walls. Yes, of course, the cruciferous vegetables. I'm a big fan of cruciferous vegetables. Brand new word for this guy. Yeah, I never heard of cruciferous. Great well word, done, though. Shanley. Thank you. <laughs> we got a couple of hard C, well, the carotid artery and cruciferous vegetables. <laughs> hmm. I'm, tr- I'm trying. Fantastic. And and, and here's the, the interesting and thing. And cabbage and cauliflower. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Looking for all the alliterations. Uh, a a 0.1 millimeter reduction artery, artery walls has been previously associated with a 10 to 18% decrease in the risk of heart attack and stroke, respectively. So the research estimate that the increased vegetable intake could also reduce the risk of those medical conditions. It's fascinating when we do the health report every week uh, we learn that the key to better health continually seems to be about diet, exercise, limiting our caloric intake and getting moving, and in this case, uh, changing what you eat a little bit. It's uh, very common that diet is the key to a healthier life. This is a fascinating study. What's number three? Number three. This one I thought was pretty neat, and it's so neat that it's actually out of this world. Mm-hmm. So scientists in Antarctica, that's the place where all the penguins live, they have harvested their first crop of vegetables. And you're like, wait, vegetables in the snow? Mm-hmm. So these were grown without earth, daylight, or pesticides. Come on. Seriously, yeah. I'm, I'm not making this up. Okay. It's part of a project designed to help astronauts cultivate fresh food on other planets. And researchers at Germany at New Mayor Station 3 said they've picked 3.6 kilograms of salad greens, 18 cucumbers, and 70 radishes grown inside a high-tech greenhouse as temperatures drop below minus 20 degrees Celsius. I want to see the power bill. I want to know how they how they heated this thing. How much did, or do those cucumbers cost? They must be $20,000 cucumbers. So, and the whole... 
The, ho- the hope is that by May, scientists will be able to harvest four to five kilograms of fruit and vegetables a week. And NASA has successfully grown greens on the International Space Station. But, uh, but the researchers here say the Antarctic Project aims to produce a wider range of vegetables that one day might be grown on Mars or possibly the moon. Wow. Fascinating. And of course, if it's a greenhouse, it may be totally self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. I'd like to read more about this. Thanks for bringing this to our that attention. It kind of makes you crave some veggies, doesn't it? Oh, it sure does. Those cruciferous ones? Yeah. Do you, I get them from the deciduous forest? Yeah, you like the broccoli and the cauliflower, right? Mm-hmm. My, my favorite. <laughs> Thank you very much, All Annalee. carnivores love those. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. As uh, Well, hey, I do like uh, green onions, and I've, I see there's more asparagus in the grocery stores of late, so I, I should get some. You got a good tip from one of our listeners who's listening back to yesterday's show That's about right. how to keep green onions uh past their best before date, which they don't really come with. Yeah, but. apparently if you store, if you uh, fold them up in newspaper, wrap them in newspaper, that'll keep them I thought that was bait. just for fish and chips. That's what I thought too. Now but I guess know. it works for green onions as well. Thanks for the call. Appreciate that very much. Three things with Shanley Vidal. We'll hear it again tomorrow in 680 CJOB after the 8 o'clock news. A new state-of-the-art research facility is coming to downtown Winnipeg. Richardson International said yesterday it would be spending $30 million to build an innovation center that will focus on agri-food research and product development. Construction equipment could already be seen working at the corner of Westbrook Street and Lombard Avenue, where the four-story building will rise. And to talk about this, to talk about the impact this facility could have on business in downtown Winnipeg, we are joined by Eric Corsell, who is strategy analyst at the World Trade Center Winnipeg. Mr. Corsell, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you. We appreciate your time this morning, Eric. Uh, Talk about this building, the size of it, and how many people we could see working in that Portage and Main area once it's complete. So um, it's a 62,000 square foot uh, building. Um, I think there's going to be up to 100 people working there at first, and it'll double up to uh, 200 people uh, by the time it's fully um, operating. So what is, uh, in terms of having this center right next to their head office, the Richardson building, uh, that's got to be sort of a, I don't know if coup is the word I'm looking for, but I mean, it's certainly handy that they were able to, to acquire that land to put it right next door. Yeah, it's more than um, than, the, than just for convenience. Uh, it's more of a statement. Um, you know, they, they could have put it anywhere, um, but they actually made a you know a nice architectural design and uh, a fairly big building right in the heart of downtown. So um, it certainly wasn't an accident. Uh, definitely part of a larger strategy. So when you think about agri-food research, there's a lot of that happening already at St. Bonavis Hospital, at the research center, at Albrechtson Research Center. This is, this is a clear indication that there's lots of work to do in terms of highlighting a lot of crops that we grow in this part of the world and highlighting their nutritional value and their marketability. Fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Um, just from a trade perspective, you know, uh, what's important here is that they're adding value to uh, products that we produce here. So uh, canola, oats, uh, different, you know, grains and cereal. And um, they're trying to add value to it so that we can then export it, right? So, um, or they use it along the supply chains uh, in their businesses around the world. 
um, this is great news for us because we actually make the raw material for it. So uh, if, if they do manage to uh, to make new product lines and sell more oats and, and canola, well, that's good for everyone here. So um, it's good news not just on the building side, but also on the value-added side. Well, then the value-add side is something that I think a lot of people in Canada lament, right, that we export so many of our raw materials just to buy them back and finish products. And we're seeing a little bit of a boom in particular in uh, uh, South Central Manitoba with the, with the pea processing plant, the, the increased capacity for the potato processing at Simplot, and then uh, up in uh, Nipawa at the uh, High Line at the hog producing and uh, manufacturing processing facility there. Uh, we're really seeing that secondary processing uh, become a part of the landscape here. Absolutely. And it's something that, um, you know, it... It's not something that, that goes into a boom and bust. I know it, it kind of does at times, but uh, generally speaking, the, the food industry isn't really like that. Um, that's mostly because people eat regardless of what the economy is doing. So uh, it's also a very stable sector, and um, it, it's good that we're, we're doubling down on it. Now, you mentioned the word statement. So what, is, what kind of statement does it mean for just for downtown Winnipeg that this center is being built right near Portage and Maine? I think it's, it's, you know, for Richardson, which is one of the largest companies here, um, it's a statement to say, to tell everyone else that, you know, we're investing in our backyard. We're investing in downtown Winnipeg. Um, they didn't, you know, cop out and go elsewhere, either, you know, outside the city or outside the province. They did it here, uh, right behind their headquarters. And um, just the, the building design itself, it's a very nice building. Um, you know, they're they're telling people that they are ready to invest um, uh you know, significantly uh, in an area that that's been overlooked for quite a bit, for quite a little while. Eric, for those that don't know, what does the World Trade Center Winnipeg do? What's its role in our community and and beyond uh, beyond the perimeter highway? Sure. So, uh, you, despite our name being the World Trade Center Winnipeg, we do serve all of Manitoba. Um, we we help uh, small businesses um, grow and expand. Uh, if anyone has any questions in terms of how to launch a business, um, what are the rules and regulations, we can guide you to the, the correct places. Um, we also have incoming and outgoing missions around the world. Um, our latest one is um, in the Netherlands in about uh, two or three weeks uh, regarding water technology. So um, we're kind of active around the world, but we also serve all of Manitoba. And I'm just looking at your website, WTCWinnipeg.com, and there's something there called Trade Accelerator Program Canada. What's that? Sure. So that's um, that's a program that we started in fall. Um, so we take uh, companies that are already exporting or about to export uh, and need a, a bit more help just in terms of, of uh, you know, drafting a strategy. So uh, we help them draft an export plan. And we have experts from uh, various fields like fi- uh, finances, HR, um, the, the uh, Global Affairs Canada, the Trade Commissioner's Office. And uh, the experts kind of uh, present according to their, their expertise. And then uh, at the end of the four-day program, they have uh, a completed report that their export plan that they can then give to their bankers or um, potential partners. Uh, and it helps them quite a bit in terms of, of uh, narrowing their focus. Before I let you go, Eric, how does this help you on those outbound uh, agendas? Uh, sell Winnipeg to sell Manitoba to others that are looking for a place to invest, to to land their money and, and make it work for them? 
Well, I think there's, there's been quite a bit of renewal here in Winnipeg in the last uh, the last few years, um, and that's always uh, an easy thing to sell. Um, you know, if people from here aren't investing here, it's kind of hard to turn around and say, "Hey, why don't you come down here?" Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the movement, the, the optimism that that's um, that we, we've been feeling here as Winnipeggers for the last uh, you know 10-15 years. Uh, made it quite a bit easier to attract um, uh, or at least get, get the interest of people to come down here. Um, we think of, uh, again, the, the plant in Roquette, uh, the Roquette plant in uh, Portugal Prairie. Um, you know, that, that's a significant investment, and uh, they did it because they felt that Manitoba was a good place to invest. Uh, one more question here. I'm just looking at again at your website. You have an event coming up on June 5th, which is a Tuesday, called the U.S. Border Mission. Uh, and it says, why crossing the line is good for business. So tell us, uh, can you tell us a little bit about this particular event? Sure. Um, so uh, about once or twice a year, we go down to the American border. Um, so we, we get people to hop on a bus. We usually have experts on that bus. So uh, they can be logistics uh, experts or they can be lawyers. Um, uh, maybe food and ag uh, experts. And then uh, we fill it up with entrepreneurs who want to know how to um, get things across the border, either into the U.S. or back from the U.S. into Canada. And then the bus goes down to Emerson, and uh, we get presentations from the Canadian side and the American side. Uh, People can ask questions uh, along the way in the bus and also um, in person to the, the border agents themselves. Very, very fascinating stuff. Eric, thanks for the work that you're doing and uh, for some insight on this exciting project. All right, thank you very much for having me. We very much appreciate your time, Eric Corsell. Once again, he is strategy analyst at the World Trade Center Winnipeg, talking about the $30 million innovation center from Richardson International that will be built at the corner of Westbrook Street and Lombard Avenue, and construction uh, could already be seen on this site. Yeah, there were uh, speculation on Twitter Wondering when uh, the protesters were going to show up to uh, save the Heritage parking lot (laughs) in downtown Winnipeg. Uh, A poke and a jab at uh, some of the people who uh, others feel get in the way of progress in our community. So this is exciting stuff. You collect coins, Brett? No. Ever? When I was a kid, I... I'd hang on to coins if I got one from, like, that were really old. Been to the Mint? I have been to the Mint. It's a neat place. The Royal Canadian Mint posted their newest collector's coins on social media in the last couple of days. And one of them commemorates Manitoba's famous Falcon Lake UFO incident. It's a one-ounce pure silver coin shaped like, well, Brett and I thought it looked like a guitar pick. (laughs) Apparently, it's shaped like an alien head. And, of course, I see it now. Plus... It glows in the dark. So we're to tell us more about the coin. We are joined by a couple of guests from the Royal Canadian Mint, Alex Reeves, who is Senior Advisor for External Communications, and Eric Erica Maga, the Product Manager responsible for the coin. And uh, Alex, so we'll start with you. Um, actually, you know what? Pardon me. Erica, let's start with you because you're the Project Manager responsible for the coin. And I've never seen a coin... Good morning to you. I've never seen a coin shaped like this. How di- was it difficult to to produce something that's got this weird kind of oval shape? Yeah, these are always a little bit more intensive whenever we're doing something that's not the uh, traditional round coin, the round shape that you're probably all familiar with. However, uh, for something for a special event or commemoration like this, we thought that this would be a perfect a perfect use of this special shaped coin. 
And so how do you get it to glow in the dark? It's a special color application process that we have here. Um, and that is activated by the black light flashlight that ships with your coin. Um, so you can enjoy this coin during the day and then also um, at night or under a dark light. It, it's that otherworldly glow that adds an extra special feature to this one. So, Alex, what prompted the Royal Canadian Mint to look at this particular incident and showcase it in the form of a coin? Well, Erica and her team uh, do uh, fairly regular uh, research on themes. Uh, you know, I mean, we all have these these uh, milestone anniversaries on on the horizon, so those are pretty uh, easy to uh, to pick out, uh, and they they are tend to fly fly higher on our radar. But this one kind of uh, we kind of stumbled across it uh, last year, and uh, uh, it was it, you know it was. Uh, it's a fascinating, mysterious story, and uh, it's although it's, it may be well known in Manitoba, it's 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 not as well known outside of uh, the, the the province. And uh, it, it, we thought it'd be a great idea to share with with uh, the rest of Canadians. Uh, it, it's also a subject that lent itself so well to the shape uh, of the coin, and with the addition of technology, it was. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a match made in heaven or in the heavens, if you will. <laughs> so for those that are thinking, oh, maybe I know the story real quick. The Falcon Lake UFO incident happened May 20th, 1967, uh, when a man named Stefan Mikhailik claims he saw a strange object land from the sky. And it uh, is a fairly credible account, according to most sources. And now it's being commemorated with this coin. Erica? It's, yes, that's right. It sounded like you were going to jump in there on something else that uh, Alex was saying there and the whole idea of, of the process, perhaps? Yeah, so um, when we, we came across this story, I reached out to Stan, um, Stephen's son, and uh, asked if he would be you know, interested in lending his father's story to this special coin. And he was very enthusiastic from the very beginning and uh, a wonderful person to work with on this project. And we had you know, debated a lot of design ideas and, um, you know, he passed on some of his father's original sketches that we used to incorporate into the uh, final design. Um, and so this whole process was uh, a really wonderful, a wonderful project to work on with him. So there's only 4,000 coins that are going to be made for this. When you produce these special coins, Erica, how quickly do they go? This one it has really taken off. We went on sale on Tuesday, and we are almost sold out of all 4,000 coins. The, the, um, the reaction from the public on this one has been uh, phenomenal. Yeah, it's $129.95. Uh, where, can, uh, where can I buy it if I want to pick one up? These ones are available at um, the boutique in Winnipeg, if you want, or uh, online at mint.ca as well. We have these available at our Canada Post outlets, and any um, local coin dealer should have some as well. Okay. Um, so before we, we let you go here then, can we ask you if what about what your next, what do you have on your horizon for your next coin? Well, I'll jump in on that one. <laughs> <laughs> We have, we have a policy of not discussing uh, details of new coins before they launch. Okay. So, uh, but you know what? Uh, you know, uh, we put out uh, an average of 200 collector coins a year. Uh, we have a lot of room to tell 
some interesting uh, stories of, of Canada to, to tell some new stories that are less well known. And uh, you can be sure that we're, uh, we're going to be looking at new innovations that lend themselves well to, to interesting themes like that. So uh, it's a great idea to keep, uh, to keep a close eye on what we have on mint.ca. We have new issues every month, uh, 11 times a year. So uh, there's a lots of new stuff out there and uh, something for everyone for sure. All right, Alex Reeves, Senior Advisor for External Communications at the Mint, and Erica Maga, the Product Manager responsible for this coin. It is a new collector coin, a one-ounce pure silver glow-in-the-dark coin, Canada's unexplained phenomena, the Falcon Lake Incident, again, May 20th, 1967, where Stephen McCulloch, two glowing objects descended from the sky, One landed close enough for him to approach. When the craft suddenly took flight, its emission set his clothes ablaze, leaving him with mysterious burns and an unusual tale to tell. My goodness. Beautiful glow-in-the-dark coin shaped like an alien head. Uh, It's really cool. And they're almost sold out. Mint.ca for more information. Yeah, they're shipping in June, so you might want to get on that and uh, order it, secure yours online. I think I might do that today. Over-the-counter culture on 680 CJOB. As we were making our way through our day yesterday, Brett, dire warning from the CDC, that's the Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, came across the wire, as we call it. Nightmare bacteria could be closer than you think. Here is Kristen Dahlgren from NBC News. One type of so-called nightmare bacteria found more than 200 times in hospitals in more than 27 states last year. A drug-resistant germ so dangerous, it kills up to half of those infected. Not only can the bacteria itself spread to other patients, but the genes that allow it to be resistant can also be shared to other bacteria. This is the triple threat. According to the CDC, one in 10 people screened for the superbug tested positive many with no symptoms, but still able to spread the bacteria. The big risk for these types of very resistant organisms tends to be in our hospitals and nursing homes. That last voice you heard is that of Dr. Arjun Srinivasan. He is Associate Director for Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Programs in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Doctor, thank you for taking some time with us today. I know you've been doing a lot of interviews on this. This has captured a lot of attention. It has, and we certainly appreciate your help in getting this message out. This is definitely information that we we want people to have. Now, superbug, that might be a terminology a lot of people are familiar with. Is this nightmare bacteria in fact a superbug? You know, these, uh, as you can imagine, aren't really medical terms. Right. These are organisms that are really hard to treat. But, you know, the the difference between, you know, what we had described previously as the the superbug, the carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae, these are variants of that. The difference is that these are really unusual variants that we're detecting of that. Um, And so these are ones that we think there's a great opportunity to control them at their first sign. You know, these are new things that are appearing, and we think we have a great opportunity when something is new to try to take an aggressive stance to, to control it. And that's why we're specifically calling out these more unusual forms of this superbug, nightmare bacteria, CRE, whatever you want to call it. 
Dr. Srinivasan, uh, we heard in this report that a lot of people can carry these bacteria. How can so many people carry these bacteria and not get sick? Yeah, so these are bacteria that, that live in our gut, and they can live in our intestines for long periods of time and not cause us any problems. And so that's one of the great challenges with uh, controlling the spread of these organisms. And I want people to understand that these are not bacteria that are generally found kind of out in, in the public. Most of the time, these infections and the people who carry this bacteria without having infections are those who are already ill. They are in hospitals, they are in nursing home settings, and especially in nursing home settings that are providing specialized care, like being on ventilators. But there are instances where people acquire these organisms, they end up in their intestines, and we don't know about it. And that's why one of the things that we call for in in this strategy, this effort containment to really try and, and control the spread of these organisms is doing some testing of people who have been in the same physical location as one of these patients who ends up having one of these resistant organisms in order to see if there's been any undetected spread. So you mentioned the fact that you feel confident that you're in a position to to maybe jump on these bacteria and get all over them. What has the CEC or CDC done to react to this? You know, that's one of the things that we're especially excited about and we want to make sure people are aware of. We do have now a national network in the United States uh, to allow us to both detect these types of unusual, uh, unusual resistance and to respond to them. So we now have a network of 50 labs throughout the United States that are supported by seven regional labs and all backed up by the central labs here at CDC that are really performing frontline testing on organisms that are suspicious whenever a clinician is is worried or or suspicious. And they're able to, to do that testing and to sound the alarm and let people know, yes, this is one of these rare and unusual resistant organisms. And then we also have trained staff now. CDC is supporting staff, about 500 staff uh, in every state in America who are trained and ready to help healthcare facilities and providers respond to these resistance threats. And we think this combination of of an enhanced detection network uh, capacity and the response is what's going to help us uh, stem the tide against resistance. What can we do? What are some of the important things that the public can do to help suppress this? You know, the the most important things that we can do as members of the public is to work to keep ourselves healthy. You know, if you don't get an infection, you won't get a resistant infection. So basic things like keeping your hands clean, maintaining your chronic conditions, if you have things like diabetes, making sure those are well controlled, and of course, getting vaccines that are recommended to us. And when we are in a healthcare setting, when we or a family member or a friend or at a hospital or a nursing home, it's really working to be part of that team. You know, you are perhaps the most important part of your healthcare team. And one role you can play is reminding people to clean their hands when they come into that room. Before they touch you, ask them, have you cleaned your hands? It's such a basic and important step. Healthcare providers do a good job of it, but we can always stand with a reminder. Dr. Srinivasan, thank you so much for this time this morning. We appreciate it greatly. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you.
Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, Associate Director for Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Programs in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Just had a text message. Who did you reach out for the Canadian perspective on this story of superbugs? Well, we'll go back to the original headline from the WHO. The world is running out of antibiotics. We need new, more effective antimicrobial drugs. Pharmaceutical companies do have a role to play in creating these new medicines. However... Major pharmaceutical companies have dramatically reduced research and development for new drugs, including antibiotics. And the bulk of the research is in the hands of publicly funded organizations like Albrechtson Research Center at St. Boniface Hospital and at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Grant Pierce tells us what he and his group of researchers are doing to do their part. Dr. Pavel Dibroff, who's at the University of Manitoba in the Department of Microbiology, and myself have been working very quietly on identifying a new target and then trying to create drugs to hit that target. We've identified a protein that creates energy for the bacteria. So this has nothing to do with protein synthesis. It has nothing to do with the DNA. It has nothing to do with bacterial cell wall. This has to do with an energy system. It's a sodium-dependent energy system, and, and it is a particular protein called NQR. And this particular protein makes energy so that the bacteria can live and the bacteria can replicate and proliferate and get bigger and, and more dangerous. The unique part of this is that this particular NQR protein is only in bad bacteria. It's only in pathogenic bacteria. It's not in all pathogenic bacteria. So we've developed drugs to inhibit this NQR protein, thereby kill or stop the bacterial cell from replicating. So what you have to do is you have to reverse engineer the cells and then find a target. They've done that. How long will this take, Dr. Pierce? Unfortunately, it's a long process. As you would imagine, it takes a lot of funds to hire the people to do the research, to to make these drugs, uh, synthetic drugs, and get them into the quantities that we need to put them into animals first and then into humans because we don't know what, what their effects are, what their side effects are. So right now we're trying to get the, the most optimal chemical structure that will have the least toxic effects on the body but have the most ability to inhibit our NQR and kill the bacteria. We're probably looking at another six months before we have the absolute what we think is the optimum structure, then we would move that into animal trials to see, is it safe? Is everything okay? Is it going to kill whatever disease we want? And in the meantime, we've got to raise money to do that research, to find the money to do the research. Then in human trials, you're probably looking at at least two years to three years to, to get that. So Minimum would be five years before we have compounds. And of course, again, this is a unique situation for us in which you tell me, when I go down this pathway that I just laid out for you, that's for one disease. Let's say it's gonorrhea. That's five years. When you see the headline, drug-resistant nightmare bacteria pose growing threat, 
uh, that should encourage some people to come to the table a lot quicker with resources, uh, including the money required. Winnipeg, as you may know, has become an international centre for health research. AIDS research has some of its most influential work being done at the University of Manitoba and at the National Virology Lab. Leading edge research in HIV, SARS, H1N1 flu and Ebola has all been conducted here in Manitoba. And Brett, I think to summarize, if the work being done on NQR at St. Bonavis Hospital at U of M is a genuine breakthrough, the research being done by doctors Dibrov and Pierce will once again have Manitoba punching far above its weight class in the fight against this global health crisis. You can get more on our series, Over the Counter Culture, at cjob.com. The headline for Greg's story, Winnipeggers researching antibiotics alternative to fight growing bacteria immunity. Want more Over the Counter Culture? Go to cjob.com. We were talking about Facebook the other day and how you connect with people from high school or university or from the old neighborhood you haven't seen forever. I have not seen Robert Metcalf. In almost 15 years, and you'll, you're as good looking as you were 15 years ago, Bob, and it's great to see you. I'm just sad that it's uh, really uh, might be the last time I get to see you. Yeah, well, we'll never say never. You know, Winnipeggers, uh, we, we connect. You know, if there's, a, if there's a Winnipeg social that happens every year in Florida... I think the possibilities of us seeing each other again are pretty good. Sounds good. Robert Metcalf <laughs> is the outgoing artistic director for Prairie Theatre Exchange, and we're going to talk about the arts as we, we often like to do, but we like to normalize it a little bit for folks. I'm Greg. He's Brett. And uh, Prairie Theatre Exchange getting close to wrapping up the 2017-2018 season. Before we talk about any of that, uh, Mr. Metcalf, where are you going? Well, um, we're heading back home. We're uh, Vancouverites, my wife and I, and um, uh, we love it here, but it's the call of family, um, just which is some prairie people sure understand about going off somewhere and then being pulled back like a, like you got a rubber band attached to you. Yeah. And, uh, so uh, my wife's uh, my twin, uh, identical twin, and her sister's been living in Edmonton, and she's gone back to Vancouver, and we're going back, and my wife's dad is 82. Five now, and you know it's just it's just time to circle the wagons a little bit and uh, and go home for a bit. So do you do you buy your uh, like your own tent when you move there, or are you going to buy one here and take it back with you to, to live in? in well, no, but, well, you've heard about the laneway houses in Vancouver, right? Yes. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna live in a dumpster by the laneway house. Um, <laughs> Sounds classy. Yeah, it's good. Well, it's that it's that West Coast lifestyle. Right? Oh, we just, of course, uh, <laughs> and you know that call of home. You're right; it is a prairie thing, and so uh, you've really become a prairie boy in your time here. Oh yeah, yeah. And I raised my kids here, and it, it, what's great is, um, you know, they came here determined to be Vancouver girls and totally turned into prairie girls. And, nice. Uh, and and I go back when we go back to Vancouver now, where I'm walking down the street and I see people, and I go, "Morning." Morning, and Miriam, my wife, touches me and says, "We're we're not in Winnipeg now," and uh, and I pointed that out to uh, to my daughter who uh, who went to UBC for a while, and she said, "Oh no, don't worry, you can you can wear them down with relentless prairie cheerfulness." <laughs> <laughs> 
Outstanding. <laughs> so PTE, uh, for those that don't know, located uh, Portage Place. Portage Place, third floor of Portage Place. Yeah, you can park underground and take an elevator right up to the third floor there. Well, yeah. And I mean, what a change. I, I'm old enough to have gone to classes at PTE back in the old days in the old buildings that are all that's left of them are the facades right. of the new Red River College, right, on Princess Street. So th- this theater has an incredible heritage. Yeah, well, we're forty. We're just uh, finishing our forty-fifth season this year. Yeah, it's a it's a real testament to this city that uh, you've got PTE at um, at forty-five years, and I think MTC is going to be turning sixty uh, next year. Or yeah, I think it's next year they turn sixty. It's it's um or maybe it's this year, but it's a it is a testament and the RWB. I mean, we're we're. A, we're a city that thinks of ourselves as this small town, but we're not. It's a really vibrant, major um, arts hub, and uh, everybody across the country knows that. Well, and as far as arts are concerned, you do get some of your funding from the government, right? Well, we do, yeah. There's a percentage of our um, of our budget, our overall budget, that comes from the government. In fact, we just got a little bump from the Canada Council, which is the, the federal uh, budgets. People think that, that it's a lot of money, but we went... we. With the bump, they're now like 16% of the $2.5 million that we spend. And we spend all that money in, uh, in Winnipeg. And, and uh, there's pretty clear studies that uh, show that, uh, and I'm not, uh, there's studies by businesses, the business sector, uh, who are supporters of the arts, that show that money that the government uh, puts into the, to the arts because of the way we spend it uh, ends up uh, being a net return in taxes back to them. So they, if they give us 100 bucks. Uh, of your tax money, they actually get back up to 200 bucks. Now, even if those numbers are stretched, even if it's like 150 bucks or 105 bucks, uh, that's not, you know, return on investment's not too bad. I would argue if it was 101 bucks, it would be worthwhile because the quality of life uh, uh, aspect of living in Manitoba is, is such a critical piece of people enduring winter, enduring what we endure to live here. And that extra little bit of culture that we have, whether you enjoy it or not, uh, really gives us an, an upper hand in terms of keeping people in our community and attracting them here in the first place, uh, people like you. Well, absolutely, and and uh, it's it's kind of like the professional sports teams. It's like whether you go or not, it's still great to have them in the city. It puts Winnipeg right? on the map. Well, and it and it, uh, you know, y- we all want to fix the potholes, which is absolutely true. Uh, but once the roads are fixed, I want to have somewhere to go. That's a great point. <laughs> That's a very good point. Don't want to have nowhere to go. <laughs> and actually, one of the places you could go is starting tonight. It's uh, the final play of the PTE 2017-2018 season. Fly Me to the Moon. Fly Me to the Moon. Yeah, it's very, very funny. We uh, we previewed it last night. The folks were on their feet. This is a uh, an Irish comedy, which uh, which means that everything goes wrong. And... Um, uh, and that, and it starts with somebody dying, and then gets funnier from there, <laughs> um, because it's Irish, and it's it's about two uh, health uh, home care workers um, who are looking after a an, an old guy named Davy, and and he dies on the loo, like in the first couple of minutes of the play, and and but it happens to be the day that his pension comes in, oh. so if they don't tell anybody for just a couple hours, and then he always puts a bet down on the horses. And he wins, so that if they don't tell anybody for another couple of hours, <laughs> and then and then like every plot that you ever make, 
um, uh, to get ahead, something goes wrong. And then the more, the more you try to fix it, because it's a comedy, the more it goes bad. It's very, very funny. Yeah, that sounds great. That's happening uh, tonight until April 22nd. It runs yeah. for two hours. Is there an intermission in there that? There is an intermission, so you can have a drink and uh, and uh, relax. And uh, Yeah. What was that mean? It was it Waking Ned Divine? Waking Ned Divine. Yeah, that's a great film. Eh? Right? Is that, that's, that's, a, that's, the, that's the one. Is it Scotland or, or Ireland? Where, I think that's in I think that's in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. where the where the, where the uh, Ned wins the wins the lottery. Uh, spoiler alert! This yeah, movie yeah. came out in like 1995. So spoiler alert! If you haven't seen it, he wins the lottery. Yeah. Someone finds the ticket and and they, uh, they of course conspire. Yes. Yeah, it's a it's a really fun movie. It so is. I, I couldn't help but think of it when you were describing the play. In the play, they they do all this for far less money. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Far, far less. <laughs> now, you have, uh, we want to talk about the 2018-2019 season yeah. as well, which has an, an interesting theme. But before we do that, uh, the bonus series, you have something called Who Killed Spalding Gray? Yeah, no, that's, uh, we've got two shows that we've kind of slid in at the last minute for in this season. And uh, starting next week, on uh, just for four nights only, there's this show called Who Killed Spalding Gray by um, Daniel MacGyver. Daniel MacGyver is uh, uh, some of your listeners who may have gone and seen um, either plays at PTE like Small Things or um, um, uh, The Best Brothers he wrote. Um, he's a writer performer and he, and, he, and he has and he writes a lot about family and he, he writes um, uh, multi-character plays but he also has this career as a as a a solo performer doing a, kind of uh, as a monologist. And in this play, uh, this monologue that he does, uh, he is looking, he's telling you a story about himself um, and uh, how a psychic told him that he had a, um, a malevolent um, a being living in him and he should get rid of that. So he goes to California to do something about that. We don't know whether any of this is true, by the way. And then, and then there's another story about a guy named Howard who is, is, uh, wants to kill himself, but he's, but he's really depressed about the fact that he would probably mess it up. So he hires a guy named Don to, to just kind of whack him when he's not looking. And uh, he spends three days walking up and down the beach just waiting for it to happen. And then Spalding Gray. Now, Spalding Gray is an American uh, monologist that... Uh, was is quite is quite well known in you know for those of you who follow the monologist uh, um, circles. I know that it, they're right up there with. Um, I see the standings you know, in the paper every, do, every yeah the weekend. stats. There's that whole section in the paper about, <laughs> about monologues. But Spalding Gray uh, actually had a movie called uh, Swimming Swimming to Cambodia uh, back in the '80s. So he was he was pretty well known. Now he he killed himself by jumping off the Staten Island ferry in 2004, and this all happened at the same time. So. So MacGyver weaves these three stories into this kind of bizarre, um, um, uh, inter interwoven um, um, single story. Uh, it's it sounds a little bizarre, but uh, well, it is a little bizarre. So it's this this show, and this is the beginning of a, a second series that we're doing at PTE for people who are looking for something a little more out, outside the box, mm. right? And so this is taking place in our our studio theater. Uh, it's it's funny. It's it's really uh, heartfelt. Um, MacGyver can write about the human condition and about family better than anybody I know. And um, 
Uh, it's in the 80 seat theater, so um, you can he can spit right on you if you're if you're there. It's yeah, so you're really close. It's it's a really intimate little space and four nights only. Well, and that's what this is actually the, the the show that really grabbed my attention because the idea of going to see a show that's one person. I think most of us or many of us would be used to that being a comedian, right? Uh, right. So in a, in a dramatic space, uh, I just find that uh, find that kind of neat. And is it from the performer's standpoint? Because they're telling a story like this rather than just spouting off jokes, does that make it more difficult for them to, to hold it together? Well, I don't think it makes it more difficult for them to hold it together so much as um, uh, they just have to be really good at story, telling you a good story, which a comedian does too. Like a really great comedian, as even even through the jokes, is telling you one long story. You know, they start with something at the beginning and then they land on it at the end and you realize that you've been taken on this story. Well, this is just a, a little more refined and uh, uh, theatrical version of, of that, except it's not a stand-up comic uh, uh, kind of thing. And we have another one that's coming up in May uh, where Torquil Campbell, who is the lead singer for uh, the band Stars, he, he also has a theatrical background has written a um, a kind of a, 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 it's a piece about a con man and it's just him and a piano player and he he tells you this this great story so and and this is again four shows only this will be in May and this is to lead up to the changes that are coming up next year where well, we're doing this a lot we'll talk about the next season in a moment we got to pause and check our forecast it is Robert Metcalf is our guest. He's the artistic director for Prairie Theatre Exchange. And we'll tell you about the new season in a moment. Oh, we still have stuff to give away. Why don't we do that right now? Two tickets to Manitoba's Big Spring Antique and Collectibles at Assiniboia Downs this weekend. Call number 4-204-780-6868. Mackling McGarry on... Oh... I just want to say, are you calling Bob an antique? Is that, is that what you just did? It's just white hair. Just wait. And you know, we mock what we're doomed to become, okay? I'd rather have white hair than no hair, and that's the route I'm going. It's Mackling McGarry on CJOB. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry and Shannon Lee Vidal. And thank you for listening to CJOB. And then-